Section 54 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Sutner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 13, Part 2. The danger that peace will be concluded is coming steadily nearer, said my brother Otto, complainingly one day. We were sitting at the time at the family table again, Frederick on the sofa near us, and someone had just read out of the newspapers the tidings that Benedetti had arrived in Bohemia, obviously entrusted with the mission of suggesting proposals for peace. My little brother, he was indeed big enough by this time, but I had got into the habit of calling him so. My little brother was in fear of nothing so much as that the war would come to a speedy end, and it would not be his lot to chase the enemy out of the country. For the news had just come from the Neustadt, that in case hostilities had to be resumed, then at the next period of calling out the reserves, that is, next August the 18th, not only the recruits of the last year, but also a large proportion of the last but one, would have to go at once into active service. This prospect delighted the young hero. Straight from the academy into the field. What rapture! Just so a schoolgirl looks out into the world, to her first ball. She has learned to dance. The Neustadt scholar has learned to shoot and fence. She longs to display her powers, under a blazing chandelier in evening dress, to the accompaniment of the orchestra, and he longs no less for the smart uniform and the great artillery dance. My father was, of course, pleased in the highest degree at his darling's martial ardour. By easy, my brave boy, he said, in reply to Otto's sigh over the threat of peace, patting him the while on the shoulder. You have a long life before you, even if the campaign were to come to an end now, it must break out again in a year or two. I said nothing. Since my outbreak against Aunt Mary, I had, on Frederick's advice, formed and carried out the resolution to avoid these painful disputes on the subject of war as far as possible. It would lead to nothing but bitter feelings, and after having seen the traces of the grim scourge with my own eyes, I had so increased my hatred and my contempt for war that all defence of it cut into my soul like a personal insult. About Frederick we were indeed at one. He was to quit the service, and I was also clear on this point that my son Rudolf should not be put into any military institution where the whole of the education is directed, and must, to be consistent, be directed to awaken in the young a longing for deeds of war. I once asked my brother what might be the views which were put before the students on the subject of war. His replies came to something like what follows. War was represented as a necessary evil. Thus, at any rate, evil, a concession to the spirit of the age, but at the same time as the chief excitant of the noblest of human virtues, such as courage, the power of self-renunciation and the spirit of sacrifice, 
as the bestower of the greatest glory, and lastly, as the mightiest factor in the development of civilization. The mighty conquerors and founders of the so-called universal empires, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, were quoted as the most exalted specimens of human greatness and recommended for admiration. The successes and the advantages of war were set forth in the liveliest colours, while they passed over in complete silence the drawbacks which inevitably came in its train, its barbarising influence, its ruinous effects, the moral and physical degeneration it causes. Yes, assuredly, for the same system was pursued in my case, in the education of girls, and it was thus that was kindled in my childish spirit the admiration of warlike laurels which at first inspired me. If I had even myself been full of regret that the possibility of plucking these laurels did not beckon me on as it did the boys, could I now take it ill in a boy if such a possibility filled him with joy and with impatience? And so I answered nothing to Otto's complaint, but quietly went on with my reading. I was, as usual, reading a newspaper, and that was filled, as usual, with news from the theatre of war. Here is an interesting correspondence of a physician who accompanied the retreat of our troops. Shall I read it aloud, I asked. The retreat, cried Otto. I had rather not hear about that. Now if it were the history of the retreat of the foe, hotly pursued. As a general principle it surprises me, remarked Frederick, that any one should tell the tale of a flight which he has accompanied that it is an episode of war which the people concerned in it generally pass over in silence. An orderly retreat is, however, not a flight, interposed my father. We had one in 49. It was under Radetsky. I knew the story and prevented its continuation by interposing. This account was sent to a medical weekly paper and therefore was not intended for military circles. Listen and without further request for permission, I read out the passage. It was about four o'clock when our troops began the retreat. We doctors were fully occupied dressing the wounded, to the number of some hundreds who could bear removal. Suddenly cavalry broke in on us and spread themselves beside and behind us, over hills and fields, accompanied by artillery and baggage wagons, towards Conigratz. Many riders fell and were stamped to pieces by the horses that came behind. Wagons overturned and crushed the footmen, who were pressed in amongst them. We were scattered away from the dressing station, which disappeared all at once. They shouted to us, save yourselves. While this cry went on, we heard the thunder of the cannon, and splinters of shell began to fall amongst our crowd. And so we were carried forward by the press, without knowing whither. I despaired of my life. My poor old mother, my dear espoused bride, farewell. On a sudden, we had water before us. On the right, a railway embankment. On the left, a hollow way stopped up with clumsy baggage and sick wagons, and behind us, an innumerable crowd of horsemen. We began to wade through the water. Now came the order to cut the traces of the horses, to save the horses, 
and leave the wagons behind. The wagons of the wounded also. Yes, those two. We on foot were almost in despair. We were wading again over our knees in water, every moment in fear of being shot down or drowned. At last we got into a railway station, which again was closely barred. Many broke through the barrier, the rest leaped over it. I, with thousands of the infantry soldiers, ran on. Now we came to a river, waded through it, then clambered over some palisades, passed again through a second river up to our necks, clambered up some rising ground, leaped over fallen trees, and arrived about 1am at a little wood where we sank down from exhaustion and fever. About three o'clock we marched, that is, some of us, another part had to remain and die there. We marched on still dripping with wet and shuddering with cold. The villages were all empty, no men, no provisions, not even a drop of drinking water. The air was poisoned, corpses covering the cornfields, bodies black as coal, with the eyes fallen from their sockets. Enough, enough, cried the girls. The censorship should not allow the publication of things of that sort, said my father. It might destroy a man's love for the profession of a soldier, and especially the love for war, which would be a pity, I murmured half aloud. As a general rule, he went on, about these episodes of flight, the people who have been present at them should observe a decorous silence, for it is surely no honour to have borne a part at a general, suave qui peur. The fellow who, by shouting, save yourselves, gives the signal for scampering, should be shot down on the spot. One coward raises the shout, and a thousand brave men are demoralised thereby, and obliged to run with them. Exactly so, replied Frederick, just as when one brave man shouts forward, a thousand cowards are obliged to rush on and thus are really animated by a merely momentary courage. Men cannot in general be divided so sharply into courageous and cowards, but every one has his moments of more or less courage, and those of more or less cowardice. And especially when one is dealing with masses of men, each individual is dependent on the condition of his comrades. We are gregarious animals, and are under the domination of gregarious feelings. Where one sheep leaps over, the others leap after him. Where one man rushes on shouting hurrah, the others shout and rush after him. And when one dashes down his musket into the corn, in order to run away, the others run after him. In the one case, our brave troops get praised. In the other, their proceedings are passed over in silence. Yet they are all the same persons. Yes, they are the very same men, who obeying in each case a common impulse, behave and feel at one time courageously, at another cowardly. Bravery and fear are to be regarded, not as fixed qualities, but rather as states of the spirits, just like joy and grief. I, during my first campaign, was once involved in the whirl of one of these panic flights. In the official account of the Etat Major, it is true the affair was passed over in a few words as an orderly retreat, but in fact it was a thorough rout. They rushed on, 
madly raging in indescribable confusion. Arms, knapsacks, shakos and cloaks were cast away. No word of command could be heard. Panting, shrieking, hounded on by despair, the disbanded battalion streamed on, with the enemy pursuing and firing after them. That is one of the many gruesome phases of war. The most gruesome, when the two adversaries figure no longer as warriors, but as hunter and prey. Thence arises in the hunter the most cruel lust of blood, in the prey the most bitter fear of death. The pursued, hunted and spurred by fear, get into a kind of delirium. All the feelings and sentiments in which they have been educated, and which animate a man as he is rushing into battle, such as love of country, ambition, thirst for noble deeds, all these are lost to the fugitive. He is filled with one impulse only, in its greatest force, liberated from all restraint, and that the most vehement which can assume the mastery of a living being, the impulse of self-preservation, and this, as danger comes nearer, rises to the highest paroxysm of terror. End of section 54